0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello everyone. I hope you're doing well. I'm alright. The sinuses or hay fever, allergies, whatever you want to call it, are kicking my ass. So, (laughs) yeah, I've not been feeling all that great today. Lots of runny nose and that, but I mean, it comes and goes this time of year, fall and spring. Um yeah lots of people deal with it but yeah it's been um made it a bit difficult to really get in the studio because uh couldn't hear me recording with me sniffling and everything else but we're going to give it a go now I think I've licked enough of it to be able to get this recorded and get it out to you uh so what's going on how is everyone well let's see we've got uh the US government saying that oh uh, and and look i'm no fool i know how the government works i know who can mandate what don't get me wrong but basically the elites in power in congress have said "Oh, uh, well we we aren't mandating vaccines for for us meaning congress just for all of you out there in uh in joe six-pack land so look again i'm not gonna go too far down this divisive rabbit hole but the bottom line to me is I get sick and tired of elites the world over saying do as we say not as we do. Now again you can sit here and you can argue you can say oh well they don't have power to do it. Don't give me that crap. If it was really what they wanted to do, if they really wanted to send a unifying message to people then the leader of each group um I won't even call them parties because I'm pretty much over the whole party political crap. Like I say, I've known many people in government over the years, and it's just a big, um, it's like wrestling. It's like when I was growing up, and I thought wrestling was real when I was a little boy. And my mom told me, no, 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 look, I've been a barmaid for years, and the good guys would come in and drink with the bad guys. And being a kid, oh, no, it's not like that. And then when you find out, yeah, it's real, it's all an act, it's all staged, yeah, it gets you to, uh, to realize, wow, I was a fool. So again, I'm not saying there aren't any good people in politics, but there aren't many of them. And almost everyone who gets to a certain level has sold their soul to the devil, so to speak. They've made deals with certain powers that be to allow them to get where they are. So I just find it extremely, um, what's the right term? Hypocritical, I guess, that people, and especially people who are passing off and saying that this vaccine is going to solve everything, And that they're telling people, oh, well, you have to get it, no matter what your feelings are, and we don't. And again, look, folks, I'm not here to try and sow division and and, and get people stirred up and saying I'm an anti-vaxxer. I'm not. Look, I've kept my personal opinions pretty quiet on this. Uh, The reality is I think that each person needs to make their own decision. Now, I don't think that vaccines in and of themselves are evil or inherently the mark of the beast or similar i mean the reality to me though is that people should have the right to at the very very least consider their options okay and yes i understand both sides of the coin and i understand what people say that if people aren't getting it that they're risking other people and again i don't want to weed too far into i don't want to wander too far into the weeds on this because again i know most of you listening to this are affected by this every day no matter what your feelings are, and you're probably tired of hearing about it, but I find it extremely hypocritical to have the quote-unquote elected officials of a nation say, well, it's good enough for all of you, no matter if you want it or not, or whether you agree with it or not, but, um, oh, yeah, that's not how it's going to work for us. We got to make up our own minds. That is literally that old saying of do as I say, not as I do. And uh, my stepfather was uh, born in the great, De- or sorry, was born in the twenties, lived in the Great Depression, World War Two generation, fought in war, and he used to say that all the time: "Do as I say, not as I do." And what a bunch of hypocritical tripe that is! And, and again, like I say, I understand the uh, legislative side of it and everything else, but if you really, really wanted to send a message of solidarity, either group uh, or all groups then you would be out there saying, here's our, what do you want to call it, press opportunity. We're going to get everyone in our group together, in our party, whatever you want to call them, and we're all going to get our shots here, and we're going to answer questions, everything else. But when you do things like this and you say, oh, well, no, all of you have to get it, but we're not going to get it, you sow division. You sow these people who are saying it's the mark of the beast and and everything else, and, and it's uh, got secret things in it and everything else. Of course, you're gonna you're gonna just fuel that fire, and again, I know that there are people out there listening. I know that I've got many listeners in the healthcare world, and I do feel sorry for you. I, for one, look to me, it doesn't matter at the end of the day what the virus is, whether it was half man created or it was man created or it's natural. It's killing people, and again, I know there are people who are saying, oh, it's a big hoax, and there's no nobody's dying. Nah, that's, sorry, that's just bullshit. The numbers might not be as big as certain people put out there, and as with anything, people on both sides are going to spin the numbers, so people who want to downplay it are going to point to the percentages, and the people that want to upplay it are going to point at the number of people dying. But the reality is there are people dying, there are families affected, I've got lots of friends and family who have had family members affected by this, and it's not a great thing. Now, again, taking the vaccine or not—that's up to individuals. Like I say, to me, it's just the absolute hypocrisy of the elite to once again say, "Oh well, no, you do what we tell you." <laughs> Come on, it just pisses me off when when I hear something like that. So, anyways, sorry, folks. I know I usually don't diatribe too much on the political spectrum of things and especially in and around covid because as i say i know how divisive it is but i can't hold my tongue on this it's just so hypocritical to sit there and say that uh, let's see aside from that um there's news reports that hey guess what al-qaeda leadership are going back into afghanistan <laughs> really really are you really surprised it's kind of like if you've got the neighborhood gang right and the police come and they arrest the gang and they kick them out and everything else and uh let's say uh, i don't know maybe you get a new police chief and he's not so hard on gangs and the gangs move back into the neighborhood and oh guess what the 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 local drug dealers are starting to hang out with the gangs and of course this kind of stuff's going to happen and again both parties and all four sitting presidents that have been there since afghanistan occurred have all got blood on their hands, and they've all got culpability in this. No one is free from uh, fault in this. I'm not going to attack him too much, okay? But I just want to say one thing. When you've got a president who says, oh, I didn't want to be in Afghanistan anyway, Uh, and I get that he wasn't the president the first time around, but, okay, you were the vice president for eight years while your um, administration stayed there. And even after you basically accomplished the mission, which we were all told which was to get bin Laden, if you believe that, and I understand some people who don't because we've never been shown any proof, we've just been told he was killed, uh, yeah, well, you had your opportunity then, your group, to pull out. So all I'm saying is no one gets a free pass here in my book. All four of them are culpable to one degree or another. And uh I don't really care. I don't want to hear, well the first guy invade yeah, and, and, and you're right, and he owns a lot of the blame. But so do the other three that allowed it to continue on. And now, like I say, here we go. We are not even, folks, two weeks out. What well maybe it's a little bit longer. I'm a bit out of touch with time, I, I agree. But what is it? It's not okay. It's not even a month out. And already Al Qaeda's back in. Any shock? Now again, I, I do kind of wonder is this been put out there as a boogeyman type thing to say oh now we got to we got to go back and do afghanistan or we got to support pakistan or again when you've got a country spending more than 50% of the gdp on the military yeah the war drums are always going to beat because those defense contractors need to get paid and we need to abandon all of that stuff in afghanistan so we can build more and make more money now, I don't know what the exact number is, and I'm not going to take the time to look it up right now, but I remember back in school, or not long after school, reading in the paper, yeah, back then, way way back in the before times, when the internet was not good for much, and I remember reading in the paper that 96 of the 100 senators at that time held significant shares in arms companies. Now, I'd say it's hundred, 100% of them. I'd say all of them do and probably almost all of the representatives. And if they're not holding them, they have family members who are holding them because they know it's a racket and they know how much money those arms companies are going to raise for them. And again, this goes back a while, but I remember about 2010, 2011, something like that, 73% of all the arms in the world sold were sold by the U.S. So again, (laughs) look, I just have a bit of a chuckle when I hear the hypocrisy of things like, oh, well, we're going into free people and and peace and love and everything else. But yeah, we also want you to buy our weapons. And the deal is you need to buy our weapons. Um, We had a big kerfluffle in the South Pacific about Fiji buying weapons from uh, Russia. And oh boy, they were really upset about it. And again, they were upset because Washington wanted Fiji to buy their weapons from the U.S., so yeah, it's the same old game, and um, I'll get off my soapbox now and stop going on about my diatribe. But look, folks, I, I know you don't want to get overwhelmed in the day-to-day with politics, but it does bear paying attention to at least keeping an eye on what's going on, because when you got things like this going on, you got um, you got North and South Korea having a pissing match, shooting off missiles into the uh, South China Sea. You got this news, like I've said, about Afghanistan. You got this other news about the the general that supposedly was going, was, you know, the, the, the nukes and Trump and all of that. A lot of times when there's news like this, they're trying to misdirect you from something else. Now, I don't know just what that is right now, and oftentimes this happens, but I can usually see the misdirection when it's happening. I don't necessarily know what they're misdirecting us from, but in hindsight, I usually am right. Now, uh, on to the topic of the episode. <laughs> that's that's more than me just going on about politics. I I'm sorry, folks. I've just I've had a lot of that pent up in my system because um hypocrisy really pisses me off, especially when it's people that you and I in the past and many people are paying to be public servants and they're treating you like toddlers who don't know what to do. And don't worry, we we know better than you do. We'll, we'll do the thinking. I can't stand people like that. Um, But anyway, it's going to be a giant news of the damned. And when I say giant, I mean giant. Trey in Oregon. Thanks, Trey. Trey sent me about three articles I've got here for you folks. And then I've got, I found so many awesome articles on Coast that I just kept going and going. And it's like 11 or 13 articles total. It's quite a big segment. So Yeah, hopefully uh, you will enjoy the articles. I tried to get a good spread for everyone. Now, aside from that, like I say, we are not far from October. So definitely for Halloween, as I say, if you've got stories that you want me to cover on the Halloween Spooktacular, send them through to theparanormalsun at gmail.com, or you can get a hold of me on social media. If you want to record your own, you can send it through recorded. If you want me to read it on air, you can send it through. Or if it's just something that's... uh, look, if, if if you don't have a way to record it, get a hold of me and uh, we can set up a remote recording and I can record you and then put it on the air. No problem. But yeah, I, I do invite each and every one of you as listeners, if you want to be involved in the program, there's always room for the listeners to be involved in something like that. So aside from that, like I say, we're going to have a great big News of the Damned. So this is going to be quite a long episode. Now I still get. Asked by people how they can support the show. Well, first and foremost, if you like the program, if you like what I do, if you like the news of the damned and other things, tell other people that you know. Just say, hey, you might like this guy down there in uh the corner of the world. He's a bit weird. He uh he has some strange takes, but <laughs> he's not all that bad and he's got some pretty good shows. So that's the first thing you can do. Just word of mouth does wonders, folks. You can also just go to the Instagram page and click the link or go into the show notes of any of the episodes and click on the link, and that will take you to a bit of a link tree landing page for the show. And there you can go and do and follow whatever you want. You can join the Facebook group. You can add us on Instagram. You can go and check out anything you want, really. Uh, there's also, obviously, the website, which is www.theparanormalsun.com. Uh, and then there you can also go and listen to all the programs if that's where you'd like to listen to them or do whatever you want to do on there. Again, I've been pretty bad about updating a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, and trust me, no one feels worse about it than me, but um, I've tried to find a bit more of a of a balance between the show and the life that I have right now and try and allow myself a bit of mental time and everything else as well. And uh, obviously, the unless you count... Uh, split personalities, uh, I am the one and only (laughs) employee here, so there's only me to do it. So besides that, the other thing you can do if you'd like to, you can always send a financial contribution. If you like and enjoy the stuff that I produce and the time that I put into it, you can go through that link page or through the website. You can send a PayPal one-off if you'd like. Uh, Patreon is still something I'm trying to get revamped. So, at this point, there's not a lot of offerings really for Patreon. But if someone joined Patreon, there are bonus episodes that I do try and do here and there, and I've got to do better about doing some more of those in season four. So, with all that out of the way, folks, we're now going to get into the news of the damned. for those of you who don't know, the News of the Damned is an homage to a gentleman from the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was one of the first people who really started collecting and categorizing a lot of the stories and articles in the genre of what we like to call the paranormal, the unexplained, the odd, all of the things that we cover here on the program. Well, Charles Fort collected over 40,000 notes on these different articles from periodicals and magazines but mostly to newspapers from all over the world and then he gathered them together and he wrote a series of books i always i I always confuse it but it was either four or five full books and charles fort used to always refer to anything that was excluded or ignored by science so in other words we don't have an explanation for this so let's just ignore it and hope it goes away well, any of that information he used to call damned data. Therefore, this segment, as an homage to Charles Fort, is always known as the news of the damned. Now, we've got several excellent articles tonight. Like I say, I think it's it's a lot. It's over 10, okay? So, we're going to start out here. The first one was sent to me from Trey in Portland, Oregon. So, hey, thanks again, Trey. I really appreciate you taking the time to send me through some of these because it gives us a good mix of... Uh, some of the stuff instead of just me always going to the same, uh, watering holes, so to speak. Now, this one is from Live Science, and this one says, the weirdest creatures to wash ashore. And for those of you who don't know or don't really follow it closely, there have been lots of really weird and bizarre things wash up on the shores all over the world for the last several hundred years. Now, even in the scientific age, and, you know, even in the last hundred, two hundred years... We've had several weird things wash up that we haven't quite been able to explain. Now, we are getting to where with genome sequencing and all of that stuff, it's getting easier to identify some things, because obviously, what something looks like in its live state and what something looks like when it's rotted and decomposed are two different matters, and they look completely different. So having that DNA sequencing makes all the difference in the world. So uh, here we go. It's uh, from, this is from Victoria Williams, as the writer. And it says, A glimpse below the waves can can be like watching a scene from a science fiction movie, filled with bizarre creatures that would look at home in an alien world. Most of the time, these strange animals stick to the murky ocean depths, but occasionally they wash up on land and bewilder beachgoers around the world. Here are some of the weirdest creatures that have washed ashore in the last decade. Giant squid have inspired myths and legends for centuries. Yep, definitely. But a sighting is extremely uncommon. These gargantuan creatures are the world's largest invertebrates and have the biggest eyes in the animal kingdom. Uh, The oft-quoted measurement is the size of a dinner plate, their eyes. They inhabit deep water and rarely wash up on land. But in October 2013, a monstrous giant squid washed up on a Spanish beach. The tentacled behemoth, measured 30 feet or 9 meters long and weighed 400 pounds or 180 kilograms that's about the same weight as an adult brown bear in 2020 an even larger giant squid turned up in britannia bay south africa the specimen was remarkably intact and was likely more than 13 feet or 4 meters long and weighed over 660 pounds or 330 kilograms And the good bit, as you read this article and you scroll down, they've got little videos showing some of these, and there's lots of photos as well. So if you want to see what some of these descriptions look like, there'll be a link in the show notes, as always. And I would suggest that you go and check it out if you are curious. Now, the next one says, Hairy sea monster. And I do remember hearing about this before I was doing the program. Residents of the Oriental Mindoro province of the Philippines were baffled by the appearance of a huge hairy beast in may 2018 before experts were able to examine and identify the body onlookers named the 20 foot or six meter carcass the globster as is to be expected of a gigantic rotting sea creature the smell was pretty staggering scientists later explained that the blobby body was probably the remains of a whale and that the hair-like strands covering it were most likely decomposing muscle fibers the south coast of south africa became the scene of a watery whodunit in May of 2017, when three great white sharks, I remember this story as well, washed ashore. The puzzling part, they were all missing their livers, and one was missing its heart. Scientists performed necropsies on all three sharks, examining their injuries to uncover the cause of death. Their detective work identified the likely culprit. Orcas, uh, orca whales, killer whales, also called killer whales, are known to attack other shark species and eat their organs, and the shark's injuries, were consistent with their handiwork. Livers are a particularly choice snack for orcas because they're filled with fat and rich in nutrients. And then here's the next one here. Says a fisherman found the body of a deep-sea anglerfish at Crystal Cove State Park in California in May of 2021. It was a rare find as well as a startling one, since these fish usually lurk in dark water around 3,000 feet or 914 meters below the surface and are kind of spooky-looking. Park officials determined that the body was most likely that of a Pacific football fish, a rather light-hearted name for such a frightening fish. The unusual appendage that dangles from the fish's face ends in a bioluminescent bulb, which anglerfish use to lure prey through the darkness and into their waiting jaws. And then the next one says a beach full of, of sea potatoes. The beaches of Cornwall in the UK are usually associated with ice cream and seagulls, But in August of 2018, beachgoers were met with a surprising sight. Visitors to Penzance Beach found it covered with tennis ball-sized creatures, fondly known as heart urchins, or sea potatoes. These urchins are covered in short, yellow-brown spines when they're alive, and spend their days buried several inches into the seabed around countries including the UK, Ireland, and Japan. Experts believe the stranding was evidence of a mass mating event gone wrong. Sea potatoes venture out of their burrows to breed. It sounds like uh, the high school prom, hey, a A mass mating event gone wrong. Well, ours wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, ours was, uh, was probably described best in that way. But a storm may have killed both the mood and the amorous urchins. Now, or fish with enormous ovaries. A beach on Catalina Island, California, was host to a rare site in June of 2015. A huge deep-sea oarfish, as the name suggests, these fish usually keep out of sight in deep water. This bleached giant, measuring an impressive 13.5 feet, or 4 meters in length, gave scientists a chance to study the elusive creature and its internal biology. As well as examining its muscles, feeding apparatus, and jelly-like bones, the scientists took a look at its reproductive system. There was no doubting the oarfish's sex once they discovered a pair of ovaries that were 7 feet or 2.1 meters long, and weighed 24 pounds, or 11 kilograms. Decapitated sea lions. And again, I remember seeing this article. Both grisly and bewildering, the appearance of several decapitated stellar sea lions on the shores of Vancouver Island, Canada, in 2020, had scientists stumped. At least five headless sea lions were spotted between April and July, some with their clean skulls laid next to their bodies. Now, that's really strange rather than hungry scavengers marine mammal experts believe the decapitations were the work of humans yeah i'd think so whether someone was killing the sea lions or removing their heads when they were already dead remains a mystery now here you go folks thousands of penis fish and yes that's that is what it says in 2019 a california beach became the scene of a mass penis fish mass penis fish beaching the 10-inch-long or 25-centimeter plump and pink marine worm is also known as a fat innkeeper worm. The worm's phallic shape is perfect for a life of building burrows in the intertidal zones and catching food with a coughed-up mucus net. With a coughed-up mucus net, biologists suspected that the beaching was the result of a storm. Strong winds and waves can shift huge amounts of sand, breaking burrows open and flinging their unsuspecting residents onto a beach. And then, sailing sea creatures. Another mass beaching took place along the U.S. west coast in 2014. The glassy creatures turned out to be by-the-wind sailors, hydrozoans related to the Portuguese man-of-war. Yeah, I was going to say I didn't think the Portuguese man-of-war were on the Pacific coast, but it's relative. Instead of a sting, the species focuses its efforts on its sail. The structure, made up of a colony of hundreds of small organisms, allows the sailors to travel the waters of the open ocean. A downsize of being a living sailboat is propensity to get swept up by storms. Winds likely blew the creatures right up onto the sand, where they left both a strange sight and a strong smell. Fanged cannibal lancet fish still alive. In May of 2014, beachgoers visited Janet's Pier in North Carolina. Ah, Lisa, Harry, North Carolina. Came face to face with a scaleless fanged fish. They got an extra fright when the fish turned out to be alive. It was identified as a long-snouted lancet fish, an uncommon nocturnal predator that usually stays well away from the shore. The large fangs were used for chomping crustaceans, squid, and fish, including other lancet fish. The stranded fish was released into deeper water, but later turned up on the shore again, suggesting it was too sick to make it back out to sea. Now, Mystery Decomposing Blob When a 15-foot-long sea monster washed up in Maine in July 2018, it had already decomposed so much that it was nearly unrecognizable. One beachgoer described it as a blob and called it pretty gross, because of its formidable size. Several people who saw the carcass believed it was the remains of a whale, but experts were adamant that this was no marine animal. It was a basking shark, the second largest shark species on the planet. Its body was no larger than a bulldozer had to be brought in to remove it from the beach. Sorry. Its body was so large that a bulldozer had to be brought in to remove it from the beach. Okay. I'm just a bit confused about what they said here. Several people who saw the carcass believed it was the remains of a whale, but experts were adamant that this was no marine mammal. Okay, mammal. I was going to say, hang on. It's definitely a marine creature. Okay, so there are several cases of things spotted around the world, and these do come across all the time in me doing research for News of the Damned, but an interesting story, and like I say, I always like it when there's photos and video to check out this stuff, so hey, uh, Trey, thanks again for that, and anyone who's interested, go and uh, go and check that out. You can just follow the link in the show notes. Now, the next one is also one that Trey sent me, and this is also from Live Science, and this one was written by Tom Metcalf. Now, King Arthur. Can't go past that story, and that's what Trey said to me, and I fully agree. Anything to do with King Arthur is always a fascinating one. Anyone who's interested in ancient and and, and lost knowledge and kind of what happened back in the day, really interesting one. And I've heard several, I, I mean, there are dozens of claims of the real King Arthur, where he was in the UK everywhere from ireland to scotland to all parts of of england to cornwall to even some people saying that he was actually in france and that all of this occurred in france not in england so it is a fascinating story and uh, this one is was written by as i say tom metcalf and it says ancient monument linked to king arthur is older than stonehenge research finds a mysterious stone tomb in western england known as arthur's stone because of its links to the mythical king arthur originated almost six thousand years ago as part of an elaborate ceremonial landscape across the whole area, according to archaeologists. Excavations this year, near the ancient stone structure in rural Herefordshire, just east of the River Wye, became England or sorry, between England and Wales, showed that the site was first occupied by an earthen mound pointing to another ancient structure nearby, but that a few hundred years later it was rebuilt and realigned to point to hills much further south. Project leader Julian Thomas, a professor of archaeology at the University of Manchester in the UK, told Life Science in an email. This is a ceremonial landscape like those around Stonehenge or Avonbury, but rather earlier, Thomas said. It certainly implies that this is a location that was politically or spiritually impor- important at the start of the Neolithic period. Arthur's Stone consists of nine upright or standing stones that support an immense capstone weighing more than 25 tons or 23 metric tons. The passage underneath leads to what's thought to be a burial chamber, although no human remains have been found there. The structure gets its name from legends of King Arthur, who is said to have resisted the Saxon invasion of England almost 1,500 years ago. Uh, Sorry, about 1,500 years ago. Several historical events have also taken place there, including a duel between knights during the War of the Roses in the 15th century in 1645, during the English Civil War, King Charles dined with his army there, and according to website Mysterious Britain, Arthur Stone was C.S. Lewis's inspiration for The Stone Table, where Aslan the Lion was sacrificed in his Narnia stories. It's always interesting when you've got these real sites and people use them in inspiration in some very famous stories. The excavations revealed that the first earthen mound at the Arthur Stone site pointed to the so-called Halls of the Dead, which teams led by Thomas discovered on a ridge a little over a 1,000 yards, or 910 meters away, in 2013. The Halls of the Dead were originally large timber buildings that were deliberately burned down and replaced by three earthen burial mounds. Uh, Now, they're the archaeologists, but I always love it when they say deliberately. Well, how do we know it was deliberate, all right? possibly after a local leader had died. The remains of similar wooden buildings have been found at Neolithic cemeteries in Europe. The original mound site was retained by a palisade of upright wooden posts and was very similar to the central mound at the Halls of the Dead site, Thomas said. But the posts soon rotted away and the mound collapsed, so a second monument was built at the site up to 2,000 years later. The rebuilt monument, probably consisting of stones that remain today with a second earthen mound, also had an avenue of wooden posts that pointed towards prominent gap between two hills on the horizon about 12 miles or 20 kilometers away he said significantly the stone elements are on the latter alignment along with the post avenue and that is one of the reasons why i think they form part of the later version of the monument thomas said i think the initial emphasis is on the internal relationships between monuments that make up the complex but that later the focus shifts outwards king arthur Arthur's Stone is now one of the most distinctive and best-known Neolithic monuments in England. Several local legends link it to King Arthur. However, it must have stood for several thousand years by his time, and most historians think Arthur probably didn't exist. According to one tale, marks on one of the stones were made by Arthur when he knelt there to pray. Another story is that those marks are the indentations of the elbows of a giant he killed. The monument also supposedly marks where Arthur was buried. Arthur's Stone seems to have been part of a ceremonial landscape during the early Neolithic period beginning about fifty seven hundred years ago. The realignment of the stones about fifty five hundred years ago seems to have been part of an expansion of of the landscape, for example, the latter alignment may have indicated that that gap in the hills it pointed to was an important route for travellers or a source of some important resource or a place where allied communities lived or another place of spiritual significance. Thomas said. Other features of the landscape included several other earthen mounds and a Neolithic causeway, and enclosure where an enclosure, indi- were an indication that this was a place that people came to for gatherings, meetings, and feastings, and a place that retained its significance for centuries, he said. So yeah, interesting little article there, and there's always something new being discovered, always something interesting out there in the world uh, that we don't always necessarily hear about. So Trey, thanks for taking the time for sending that to me. Now, folks, my, my sinuses are something else today, and um, it's really bothering me. So I'm just going to go away for a minute. won't bother you because I'll just cut this and edit it. But um, I'm just going to go away for a minute and try and clear this up, and then I'll get on to the next uh, article. So thank you for bearing with me. Hey, uh, Scott, do us a favor and uh, cover for me while I go and sort this out real quick. Hey, this is Scott from The Old 77. Have you listened to our show? Check us out. We're The Hangout Podcast. You come hang out with a bunch of friends and just talk, and you talk about anything. I mean, like this: yeah. if Kanye dropped dead today, yeah, would you shed a tear? Deep down, would you be like, "Oh, Kanye"? Yeah, if he dies, man, I'm <laughs> sad. <laughs> I'm about to tear up right now. Oh, just dude, We've even had weird stuff happen like this. Uh, there's been a lot of stabbings in that building. Yeah, okay, wow. I'm sure there has. Couple of shootings. Wild, wild west poker yeah. games. Yeah, and poker yeah, games poker and games, shit. yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it was and of course, who can forget guests like JT from the Paranormal Sun? In my life, like you know, like the older generation talks about Kennedy getting shot. Real seminal moments to me that like I can come. New episodes out Tuesday on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Find us on social media and like and subscribe on YouTube. This is the one and only Old Seventy Seven. Thanks for that, Scott. Yeah, folks. So uh, those of you who have been listening to the program for a while, got a long association with the Old Seventy Seven podcast, and they're always really supportive and helpful. So uh, got to make sure that I get some uh, support in there for them now and then. Now and then. Now, I've uh, I've got my Vicks Vapor Rub, I've got a cup of hot tea with some lemon, so hopefully we're all good to go now, and on to the next article. So, that next one is, this is also from Live Science, and this is also from Trey, so thanks Trey, and this one was written by Yasmin Seplaglue, Seplaglue, Se- sorry, um, it's just a name I haven't seen very often, last name. And it says, lab-made mini-brains grow their own sets of eyes. Scientists recently grew mini-brains with their own sets of eyes, according to a new study. Organoids are miniature versions of organs that scientists can grow in the lab, from stem cells or cells that can mature into any type of cell in the body. Previously, scientists have developed tiny beating hearts and tear ducts that could cry like humans do. Scientists have even grown many brains that produce brain waves like those of preterm babies. Now, a group of scientists has grown many brains that have something their real counterparts do not a set of eye like structures called optic cups that give rise to the retina, the tissue that sits in the back of the eye and contains light sensing cells, according to a statement. In the human body, the retina sends signals to the brain via the optic nerve, allowing us to see images. In the mammalian brain, nerve fibers of retinal ganglion cells reach out to connect with their brain targets, or, sorry, an aspect that has never before been shown in an in vitro system. Senior author ji am not even going to pronounce his last name, a researcher at the University Hospital Dusseldorf said in a statement, ganglion cells are neurons located in the inner surface of the retina that communicate directly with the brain. Previously, researchers had grown optic cups individually in labs but this is the first study that integrated optic cups into brain organoids according to the statement Uh, j g his last name starts with a g Gopal krishnan i think and his team adapted a technique that previously developed for turning stem cells into neural tissues in order to create the mini brains with optic cups Once the stem cells had developed into mini-brains, the organoids formed optic cups. The optic cups appeared as early as 30 days and matured within 50 days, a time frame similar to how the retina develops in human embryo, according to the statement. In total, the researchers created 314 mini-brains, and 72% of them formed optic cups. The organoids contained different types of retinal cells that formed active neuron networks that responded to light, according to the statement. The organoids also formed lens and corneal tissue. Our work highlights the remarkable ability of brain organoids to generate primitive sensory structures that are light-sensitive and harbor cell types similar to those found in the body, Jay said in the statement. Why are scientists growing mini-brains like these in the lab? These organoids can be useful for studying human brain development and related diseases. Scientists could use the new organoids with their optic cups to study brain-eye interactions during embryo development, Jay said. What's more, they can be used to study retinal disorders and maybe be used to create personalized retinal cells, cell types for therapies. The researchers now hope to figure out how to keep the optic cups viable for a long time and use them in research to research the mechanisms behind retinal disorders. The findings were published August 17th in the journal Cell Stem Cell. Stem cell. So, again, thanks for that, Trey. And it is interesting. There's always something new going on behind the scenes uh, that we don't always necessarily hear about right away when it comes out like that. I mean, it's it's not that the data is hidden or obscured. It's just we can't be everywhere at once. We can't see every news article in the world every day. So I appreciate you sharing that with me. And again, I mean, science marches on. And there are lots of things today that, within my lifetime, was a death sentence And now, you know, thanks to science, at the very least, um, they've gotten it to where they definitely extend people's lives by a good, good deal. So, yeah, I mean, it's always interesting hearing about these new therapies and these new things going on. Now, folks, I've got several here from Coast to Coast AM, so I'm not going to tell you each one is from Coast to Coast. I'll just tell you when we get to a new website. Now, the first one here is an interesting little story from a couple days ago and it says prison inmate reports odd ufo sighting an inmate at a prison in england claims that a ufo appeared outside the facility and caused a weird physical effect on the bewildered witnesses who saw the curious object the unsettling account came by the way of a letter to the outlet inside times which is a publication for prisoners and detainees in britain according to the inmate who goes unnamed The odd incident occurred earlier this year at a facility known as HMP, the Vern in the county of Dorset. In recounting the puzzling event, the letter writer insisted that I do not believe in the supernatural or aliens from Mars, but what we recently saw here in this prison was really very strange and still leaves me speechless. While he and his fellow inmates were out in the prison yard getting some exercise, the witness says that he spotted a hawk, that appeared to be sizing up some prey down on the ground. The glimpse of Mother Nature in action took a strange turn, however, when a very bright light, which I first thought was the sun, appeared as the clouds opened. Incredibly, the peculiar glowing object that approached the prison yard until it was approximately 100 feet above the exercise area. The sight was so strange, he says, that both the prisoners and the guards were captivated by what they were seeing in the sky above them. The already weird event became even more bizarre when the UFO started to shrink and collapse in on itself until it sort of just dissolved into a cloud of mist, which subsequently rained down upon the prisoners. The following day, the writer recalls, we all came out in a red rash, presumably from whatever the mysterious falling material might have been. Concluding his account of the case, the man indicated the speculation over the event within the prison has understandably run rampant, with some suggesting that the inmates may have been subjected to some kind of secret weapons test, which is not altogether out of the realms of possibility, considering that the inmates were literally a captive audience. So folks, uh, there have been many cases over the years of people claiming things similar to this. Having interactions with UFOs, so not necessarily the occupants, but just the craft themselves, and then having things like this, scars, uh, radiation burns, all sorts of things. So I'm definitely not going to rule that out, and that is very interesting, That there were so many witnesses so it will be interesting to see if more people come out over time and collaborate his story or if it's just somebody wanting to get published in the local um, prisoners and detainees paper but it is interesting nonetheless and we will see i'll keep an eye out if i see any more claims backing that up in future now the next one here I've got a close friend of the audience. One of our chapter presidents in North Carolina is in the real estate game. So, Lisa, this one's for you. And this one says haunted house boasting nine ghosts goes on the market in upstate New York. So, you know, usually it's like what? Four four bedrooms, three baths. But what is this? Nine ghosts, three bedrooms, two baths. You know what I mean? <laughs> is that what you put when you put it out in the paper? So it says a residence in upstate New York that is purportedly home to a whopping nine ghosts has gone on the market with a rather weird asking price. According to a local media report, the property known as the Enslin Mansion is located in the city of Troy. Yeah, I know where Troy is and has belonged to owner Michelle Bell's family for over a century. A self-described empath and intuitive alchemist, she mused that the home has a lot of spirits. It's very haunted. And boasts a wide array of eerie paranormal activity including strange sounds and unusual incidents involving the lights inside the house bell contends that the spirits living in the residence include five members of her family including her late son as well as a boarder who passed away at the location and three yet to be identified individuals it would seem that she is not alone in her assessment of the home's haunted nature as it has been thoroughly investigated by various ghost hunting teams and has even been featured on a few cable TV programs devoted to exploring such spooky sites, In recent years, a home in the residence has even been available to rent by way of Airbnb for adventure-seeking travelers looking to stay overnight in what very well could be a genuinely haunted house. Those who would rather own than rent are in luck, as Bell has decided to put the Ensland Mansion and presumably the nine ghosts that call the residence home on the market negotiations for the sale may get a bit tricky however as bell's asking price for the home is four hundred and forty four thousand four hundred and forty four dollars which she explains is a spiritual number that she will not change she expressed the hope that the residence winds up being purchased by a young couple who will appreciate the unique history of the enslin mansion and of course the ghosts that are believed are living there so she wants about fifty thousand per ghost Yeah, I guess if she could prove that the ghosts were there and and, and she had a bit more detail, she might be able to get that. But um, I'd say in the current state in the U.S., uh, with the pandemic and everything else, it's probably more of a buyer's market than a seller's market. But um, yeah, interesting story nonetheless. nonetheless. And Lisa, if you come across any haunted houses that you put up for sale that you represent, you need to make sure you give me the inside scoop so I can cover it here on the air. Alright, so there is a link to the local media report, which is from the Times Union local news, it looks like. So if you want to know more, go and check that out. There's some pictures of, I'm just looking at it now, there's a picture of the owner, there's some pictures of the inside of the house. Um, yeah, it's just a bit more in-depth detail if you want to know some more about it. So, yeah, and oftentimes with the coast-to-coast stuff, that's what I like, is that they've got a summary but if you really want to read in depth, then there's there's a link oftentimes to to that uh, media publication. And as always, like I say, there's a link in the show notes if you want to go and check this out. So, um, I don't know about you, but um, uh, when I was growing up, I always dreamed of digging up treasure, finding buried treasure, and before geocaching was a thing, I mean, probably 30, 35 years before geocaching was really a big thing like it is now, we used to bury treasure. I remember when I was in elementary school, we used to take things like just things like coins and um, like uh, costume jewelry, you know, kind of like pirate treasure. We'd go and bury it, you know, and we'd play like pirates and, and bury treasure. And um, me and my friends, actually, uh, as corny as this sounds, I mean, back when I was probably uh, what, seven or eight, we used to draw little treasure maps and get each other to go and try and dig it up. So this is something that um a lot of men over the years have probably been interested in. And I'd say there'd definitely be some women as well, but you know especially boys uh there was a certain time frame in American history where a lot of boys dreamed about finding pirate treasure or something like that or even kind of stuff from the Civil War. So this one is is a bit uh bit disconcerting and this one is from Pennsylvania Nate. So if you're listening make sure you uh Pay attention. Pennsylvania boy, hunting for treasure, finds hand grenade in backyard. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to find that treasure. Says a Pennsylvania boy who was hunting for treasure in his backyard over the weekend made a rather unusual discovery in the form of a hand grenade that had somehow gone unnoticed on the property. According to a local media report, the unnamed 7-year-old and a friend made the unsettling find this past Sunday afternoon in the community of perkaski at some point during their search for riches outside the boy's home they stumbled upon a puzzling box that had been tucked away under some tree branches in a de- de- delightful display of youthful innocence the kids noticed there was a crate that crate was labeled 840 cartridges 556 millimeter and took the latter designation to mean there was 5 million dollars inside the box uh no the visions of an endless supply of candy toys and video games made possible by the bountiful discovery soon fizzled when they opened the container and saw a grenade, as well as a few mortar tips, wow, and fuses. To their credit, the kids did not opt to play with the potentially dangerous items, and instead told their parents about what they had found. The adults subsequently reported the strange objects to the local police, who arrived on the scene, determining that they did not pose any immediate danger and confiscated the materials. An x-ray of the grenade later showed that it was empty, which is very well may have which very well may have prevented the treasure hunt from having a tragic ending. Now, hand grenades just don't blow up, okay? Um, now, if they are rusted and, and they're deteriorated, yes, I guess that the fuse could fire, but you actually have to trigger the hand grenade, so opening the box is not going to make the hand grenade blow up. I'd be much more concerned about the mortar... The mortar... Uh. uh what does it say here? Uh... mortar tips and fuses. That's what I'd be more worried about. Because if one of those went off, obviously it could then set the grenade off. But yeah, uh Max in Illinois and um Nico in Texas. If you find any boxes marked five five six or anything marked millimeters, go and get your dad or your mom. Don't 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 go and open it yourself. Honestly. Um back in my day we probably would have, if I'm being honest, but it's not the thing to do. Go and get one of your parents. Alright, so Next one here. Now, there's a case I haven't covered yet on The Paranormal Sun. I want to say it was in 1955, but it was in Kentucky, and it's one of the most astounding UFO cases you'll ever hear about. It's the Kelly Hopkinsville case, and it was the story of a family visiting another family, and basically what they said was they, were, they weren't they were attacked. Attacked isn't the right word. Besieged, kind of like... Basically, they were in a home and these creatures were coming on the outside. They didn't necessarily attack them, but they surrounded them. And they were glowing creatures that looked kind of like floating monkeys. And some people have called them demons. So when I saw this article, it immediately made me think of that Kelly Hopkinsville case. And yes, of course, I will get to it, as with so many other topics at some point. So this one is titled Alien Sighting in Kentucky Sparks Gunfire. And that's what happened. Uh, Spoiler alert. That's what happened in the Kelly Hopkinsville case. In a bizarre story out of Kentucky, cops arrested a man for firing a gun from a hotel window, and when questioned by police, he claimed that aliens were to blame for the shooting. The strange incident reportedly occurred in the community of Richmond early Saturday morning when authorities received a call about gunfire at a local hotel. Upon their arrival, police confirmed the report as they witnessed someone shooting out of one of the windows of the establishment. After ensuring that other patrons at the hotel were evacuated to a safe location, cops swooped in and arrested Samuel Riddle, who offered an out-of-this-world explanation for what caused the frightening event. According to the Richmond Police Department, when asked why he had opened fire from his hotel window, Riddle informed detectives that he observed aliens in the parking lot and was shooting at them. Alas, it would appear that there were no ETs in the area when police arrived, suggesting that the man had either imagined their presence... Or his aggressive action caused them to return to their home planet be that as it may riddle is now facing a staggering 11 different charges for the ill-advised shooting fortunately no one was hurt in this weird incident though if an invasion of aggrieved aliens unfolds in the near future we may know who to blame yeah folks and i don't mind having a bit of fun with a story like that obviously he i shouldn't say obviously but Odds are, he probably had something else going on, whether it be drugs or uh, some kind of mental health issue. Um, Yeah, Uh, you don't go opening fire in public like that, folks, Um, which almost all of us know. I mean, there are idiots out there who don't know that, but almost all of us know you don't just go firing off in a parking lot because you thought you saw some aliens turn up. So yeah, if that does happen to you, shoot them with your camera, not your gun. That's my advice. Now on to the next one here, and this one is, uh, I saw this one, I'm I'm not sure what feed it came up in, but I saw it a few days ago and I thought, oh, this would be perfect for the program. And this one says, new bioscience company raises $15 million to revive woolly mammoth. Boasting a whopping $15 million in funding, a newly formed bioscience company hopes to bring the woolly mammoth back from extinction, dubbed colossal. The organization is reportedly spearheaded by technology entrepreneur Ben Lamb and Harvard geneticist George Church. The first stage of the ambitious project will be centered around producing a hybrid creature of sorts, comprised of Asian elephant DNA that has been infused with woolly mammoth genes that are responsible for the animal's iconic hairy coat and bodily characteristics that allow it to withstand freezing temperatures. Ultimately, Church explained, our goal is to make a cold-resistant elephant, but it is going to look and behave like a mammoth. The purpose of this endeavor goes beyond merely bringing a mammoth-like creature into our modern world to demonstrate the awesome power of science, as the company foresees the hypothetical animal as a way to help, of both helping to stave off the extinction of Asian elephants, which are a threatened species, and also preserve the climate of the Arctic tundra. Their reasoning for the latter goal is that if the region of the world were once again populated by the massive pachyderms, the animals would naturally knock down trees and cause grasslands to emerge, while also compacting the permafrost beneath them. Although Lamb and Church are optimistic about the project and hope to produce the first calves of this proverbial woolly mammoth 2.0 within about six years, experts are understandably skeptical about both the feasibility of the endeavor as well as whether or not it would actually be beneficial in fighting climate change. The scale at which you'd have to do this experiment is enormous, explained evolutionary biologist Dr. Victoria Herridge. You are talking about hundreds of thousands of mammoths, which each take 22 months to gestate and 30 years to grow to maturity. And should Colossal manage to pull it off, ecologists say, unleashing a massive herd of the creatures into the Arctic tundra could wind up causing more damage to the region rather than saving it. But it is quite interesting, and I don't know uh, what you know, my friends, as far as mammoths go, but kind of the traditional wisdom was that all the mammoths were wiped out about 14,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. But they have found out that there were definitely mammoths that survived up until three, I think it was about three or four thousand years ago, at least on one of the islands in the Aleutian Strait. Um, either, I'm I'm not sure if it's uh, in the Bering Strait, I'm not sure if it's on the Alaskan side or the Russian side, but there's an island they found these mammoths. And what they found was over time, the mammoths got smaller and smaller because they had less food to eat. So the mammoths that were on the island were more the size of small elephants versus these giant woolly mammoths. And there are rumors to this very day, and there are sightings, of mammoths in Alaska. And I would dare say probably in Siberia as well. Now, there are definitely ones thought out of the permafrost. But I mean, there are sightings and there are accounts that I've heard of people actually hearing or seeing these massive woolly mammoths in the wild. So who knows? Maybe they are still out there. And of all the places, places like that, like Siberia and Alaska, they're so uh, lightly populated by humans, you could see something like that. Uh, I'm not sure the exact number, but I would say Alaska, for example, is probably 50 or 100 times less populated by square mile than, say, Washington State or Oregon or Idaho. So what I'm saying is things like Bigfoot and that, when I hear about cases coming out of Alaska, I think the odds are exponentially much greater that something like that could survive up there versus in the continental US, just because there's so fewer people out there to see it and to encroach into the habitat. And again, it's another thing we will get onto at one point on the show here. We will cover over the woolly mammoths in Alaska and other things in Alaska. Now, the next one here is for Harry and Lisa in North Carolina and anyone else listening in North Carolina and anyone interested in archaeology and kind of lost history. New archaeological dig to be conducted at Lost Colony of Roanoke site. A team of archaeologists are set to conduct a new dig at the lost colony of Roanoke site in the hopes of unearthing new clues to the centuries-old mystery. The strange disappearance of the British settlement off the coast of what is present-day North Carolina back in 1590 has long puzzled historians with various theories being put forward for what became of the community's residents, who abandoned their homes and seemingly vanished without a trace. Fortunately, new insights into the case may soon be forthcoming, as according to a press release, a group of experts will begin a fresh fresh excavation at various intriguing locations around the site. The PROMISE project will be conducted by the First Colony Foundation, which is a group of archaeologists devoted to studying the strange story of the lost colony, working in conjunction with the National Park Service, which oversees the historic site. Researchers plan to dig in one location known as the Science Workshop, where evidence of metalworking from the time of Roanoke has previously been found. Archaeologists will also examine promising new areas that were surveyed in 2016 using a ground-penetrating radar. Cultural Research Manager for the National Park Service, Jamie Lanier, explained that this dig includes new ground that's never been tested archaeologically, so it's very exciting to see what may be found. While it's unlikely that the dig will wind up unearthing the proverbial smoking gun which will solve the Roanoke mystery once and for all, The National Park Service point to one area which they consider to be a tantalizing clue in the form of earthen ramparts likely built during an expedition in 1585 and abandoned prior to the Lost Colony's arrival two years later. Beyond that, those conducting the project hope they will produce new artifacts that will reveal more about the people of Roanoke lived prior to their disappearance. The dig will begin this coming Wednesday and conclude on September 24th with the public invited to attend proceedings And watch professional archaeologists at work. So I know it's late late notice, Lisa and Harry, and I know you couldn't make it there that quickly. But yeah, interesting nonetheless. And let's see what comes out of this. And for those of you who can't quite uh, place what I'm talking about, I don't know about you, but when we were in school, we learned about uh, uh, the lost colony of Roanoke. So it basically predated um, the Plymouth Rock colony by 30 years. And this is the famous one where. When they came back to check on the settlers, they basically found the word Croatan carved into either a tree or one of the posts at the fort and didn't find um, any of the survivors. Uh, They were just gone. So, in other words, they couldn't find bodies to account for all of the settlers, and there were many settlers that disappeared, including the very first English person born in the New World that we know of, which was Virginia Dare who was, I think, the granddaughter of the governor of the Carolinas at that time. So interesting little story, and we'll see if they find out anything more out of this dig than they have out of previous ones. Okay, now on to the next one here, and this is an interesting article, something we've been following, so I wanted to cover it over. This is from The Hollywood Reporter, but don't be fooled. It says, former Pentagon UFO official Luis Elizondo to reveal shocking details in new book. The former head of U.S. government's secretive UFO program will pen a book for HarperCollins that includes Profound Implications for Humanity. Now, yeah, he was the head of that reporting group, but it's not like he's in, he was in charge of all UFO stuff to do with um, the Pentagon. Okay, so yeah, let's just keep this in context. And it says it's by James Hibbard, and it just came out a few days ago. The former director of a secretive U.S. government UFO program is ready to tell his full story. Luis Elizondo, who headed the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, effort to study UFOs around the world, has signed a book deal with William Morrow, an imprint of of HarperCollins. So, imprint I was thinking what's imprint? It must be like a subsidiary. After a competitive bidding war for the U.S.'s publishing rights. The memoir proposes, sorry, promises to reveal shocking never before shared details regarding what Elizondo has learned about UFOs and the profound implications for humanity, all of which will escalate what is already a hot topic globally. In May, Elizondo was featured on CBS's 60 Minute segment on UFO phenomena, which I've covered on the program, which has racked up over 10 million views on YouTube, making it the show's fourth most watched segment on the streaming service. And again, Remember that that video just came out and 60 Minutes has been on the air for 50 years and YouTube's been around for, what, at least 10, maybe 15 years. So what I'm saying is in a few months, that is already the fourth most watched segment ever from uh, 60 Minutes. Former President Barack Obama added on the late show in May, What what is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there are... Are footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they move their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so, you know, I think that people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what it is, as they should. In June, the Pentagon released a long awaited report on UFOs, which was a Snorfest which has been redubbed uh, UAPs that contain limited information about the task force findings. The report focused on 143 sightings by military aviators made since 2004 of objects that seemed to defy traditional classification, and some of which seemed to break the laws of physics as well. The report offered five possible conclusions about what objects could be that range from the ultra-mundane birds' plastic bags to the rather worrisome top-secret technology from U.S. adversaries like Russia and China, to the rather eyebrow-raising other. Most significantly to UFO buffs, the report did not rule out aliens and concluded more study was needed. Said Elizondo in a statement, the American people now know a small portion of what I and my colleagues in the Pentagon have been privy to, that these UAPs are not secret U.S. technology, again, I'd argue with that, but anyway, that they do not seem to belong to any known allies or adversaries, and that our intelligence services have yet to identify a terrestrial explanation for these extraordinary vehicles. This conversation is only just beginning. Elizondo was a former U.S. Army counterintelligence special agent and helped hunt drug traffickers, terrorists, and spies. In 2008, he was asked to be part of the Advanced Airspace Threat Identification Program. A lot of it's just stuff I've already covered over. Elizondo's book deal was brokered by Dan Farah of Farah Films and Management and Yafat Rees-Gendel of YRG Partners in Literary and Media with Mauro De Pretta, Senior VP and Executive Editor at William Morrow. So take it for what it's worth, but yeah, he's going to write a book, and he's going to tell us what's really going on. But again, I've heard this so many times in UFOlogy over my life, I don't get excited until something is actually there. So we got two more articles here, folks. One is kind of short, but... It's a pretty cool little cryptid one out of Australia so I wanted to cover it. I've got more and more Australian listeners and lots of you who wonder what goes on in Australia and New Zealand I like to cover it for that as well. And then the last article is specifically for Chris and Max in Illinois but it is for everyone else as well of course and I'll explain that shortly. I will just get through this cryptid one. So this is from unexplainedmysteries.com and again folks I'm sorry my uh my hay fever and my asthma are, are really pay, uh, taking a toll today, so uh, sorry that uh, I'm a bit um, rushing through some of these articles. Missing persons eaten by Yowie Hunter claims, and this was just, again, just a few days ago this came out, 12th of September. One Australian man is absolutely convinced that the Yowie, Australia's answer to Bigfoot, is the real deal. He's not the only one, I can tell you. Although encounters with large bipedal hominids are mostly associated with North America and the Himalayas, stories of such creatures have been reported for hundreds of years in countries all over the world, including Russia, China, and even Australia, where it is known locally as the Yowie. For years, Yowie hunter Jason Heal has been scouring the wilderness around Perth, so Perth is in Western Australia, folks. If you look at Australia and you've got the right side of the map and that big pinnacle at the top. That is uh, where New South Wales and Queensland and the Gold Coast is. On the opposite side towards India, that's where Western Australia is. Uh, Sorry, um, anyway, let's see, get back to it. In search of evidence that could prove once and for all that this elusive hominid actually exists. Co-founder of the Yowie Research Group, he and his colleagues have amassed a large collection of sighting reports, photographs, and audio recordings captured in the country's huge national parks. He also claims to have witnessed yaoi's with his own eyes. I recently saw yaoi's running at superhuman speeds north of Bullsbrook, he said. I believe there is a population of yaoi's all around the outer suburbs, including Mutaring, so he means outer suburbs of Perth, Serpentine Dam, and Lake Ginnagara. I think they go to pockets of bush near people and use bush corridors, but because they are moving in early hours of morning and are incredibly quick, people never really see them. When it comes to concrete physical evidence, however, Heal maintains that these elusive hominids are intelligent enough to conceal anything that might give away their existence. He even believes that some of those who encounter them end up becoming their lunch. There are lots of people who go missing in the bush, and the cases remain unsolved, and it is usually put down to homicide, he said, but I think some of these are the work of Yowie. Look, I'm glad he did say some of, because um the reality here is that The outback is a very dangerous place. I think Australia is home to something like four of the top 10 most venomous snakes in the world. So there's lots of things out there that can kill you. And unlike here in New Zealand, where we don't have a lot of predators, there are lots of things that will come along and eat your corpse. So I would say that the vast majority of people who go out there and die probably die of something like exposure a heat stroke or being bitten by a snake. And then they're never found because predators come and eat them. But um, yeah, it it is interesting. Nonetheless, he seems to be looking at it fairly levelly, so he's not making extraordinary claims, I don't think. And uh, yeah, interesting little one. Now, I've got one more here. I know I said that that was the last one then one more, but I've got one more. This is from the same site, from uh, Unexplained Mysteries. Now, uh, Trey sent me another article that I didn't cover over, uh, and Uh, But I found a very similar article on this website, so it'll basically have the same basis. I just forgot about that other article, so I do want to cover that right now. So I'm just going to cover that, and then we'll get into the last article, and I'll explain to you about it and why it's specifically for Max and Chris, but for all of you as well. So this one is about one of the more contentious topics in the cryptid world, which is Bigfoot. And I had to cover this one because it says muscular Bigfoot caught on camera in idaho and they never say where in idaho so it's uh says so this was on the 1st of september footage has emerged online showing a large bipedal ape-like creature or is it a man in a suit we've seen a fair number of videos over the years purporting to show evidence of bigfoot a large ape-like hominid creature that is arguably the world's most ubiquitous cryptid ever since the infamous patterson gimlin footage However, it has been difficult to know whether a lot of these recordings are of a genuine animal or of someone mucking about in a costume. The latest example comes courtesy of YouTube channel NVTV, which presents the clip, which lasts only a few seconds, as an incredible, muscular, giant-shaped Sasquatch filmed in Idaho. Very little is actually known about the video or where it came from, and there doesn't seem to be an explanation for why the person who recorded it stopped filming after such a short period of time. The video caption notes that the level of detail presented in the suit makes it unlikely to be a hoax. However, without additional background information, it's impossible to say what's going on. And then there's a link to the footage. I've watched the footage, but it's really short. Like they say, it's like maybe a second at most, a second or two. But I've I've had some of these people. That That's one of the problems with me personally, with some of these things that I have always enjoyed becoming so well-known, is that everybody and their dog thinks they're an expert on things like this. I love it when people, oh, Bigfoot couldn't exist in Idaho. I'm from there, okay? There's lots of places that, because they, they say, oh, well, people go there all the time. There's lots of forests in that, it, not only national forests, but there's just forests there, and in uh, Washington State and Oregon and Montana, And then down into Colorado and Wyoming and into BC and Alberta in Canada and right on up to Canada. And if these creatures are some type of primate, they're probably intelligent to cover their tracks pretty well because people, oh, well, you would have come across them, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? There's lots of stories of people coming across them. Just because you don't find a city or you don't find dead bodies doesn't mean it's impossible. Does Do I think that every Bigfoot sighting is real? Of course not. But at the same time, I don't think that every person who says they're a doctor online is a doctor. So of course you've got to take some of it skeptically. At the same time, there's lots of explanations that I'm not going to go way, way down the path of because we'll do that on a Bigfoot episode. There's lots of explanations in and around why these things could have remained hidden for so long. Uh, judging, you know, going from the kind of quote unquote scientific based to a bit more of the esoteric. And I will get into them one day. But I just love how everybody and their dog now is an expert. It's like me, folks. You hear me say it on here all the time. I know more about a lot of these subjects than a lot of the people who say they're experts. But I don't sit there saying this is what I, I, I absolutely hate. I absolutely hate people speaking in definitives as if they know, and they have all the answers. In my mind, there's only one way we're going to get the answers, and that's probably when we pass on from this current existence, i.e. die. Um, I feel that whatever we then go into, um, we're going to have a lot better idea of kind of what's going on on this Earth and what's what things like this mean and a lot of these mysteries. Do I know that for sure? Of course I don't. That's the greatest mystery of all, is what happens after we die. But yeah, I i just get a bit annoyed with everybody and their dog saying, oh, I know, this is, oh, this is a fact. It's not a freaking fact, you know? Come on, people. So I've got one more here. And like I say, this one is an homage to Chris and Max in Illinois. The reason is, Chris is a very good friend of the show and someone I've known for many, many years. And Chris brought up to me earlier, he said, hey, are you ever going to cover over John Dee on the program? Now, John Dee is a very very interesting individual. So he was the court magician for Queen Elizabeth I back in the 1500s. And, I mean, he is right up there with some of these other mysterious and strange people, with the things that were involved in his life, there's stories about him conjuring skeletons and being a necromancer and everything else. And again, it's it's hard, I get, a lot of times, especially when you got five or six hundred years between then and now, it's hard a lot of times to separate fact from fiction, but look, that's the reality now, okay? There is no such thing as fact in my mind. There's the facts you want to state. And there's the facts I may want to state, but short of sitting there and recording what goes on in anyone's life, so so that's what I'm, okay, so sorry, let's backtrack. Most men, not all, but most men have either been bullied or have been a bully, have been involved in that in their life. So we may, way back in school, have had a fight with someone, right? And at the time, it, maybe it ended up a couple punches and a scuffle. But over time, our memories tend to um adjust that narrative in our mind to maybe make us think we won or maybe we really got beat. And over over time it's been proven in, in study after study that our memories are far from exact and they corrupt over time and they warp over time. And so it's not oftentimes it's not even a case of people quote unquote lying. It's that they remember it a certain way, which doesn't represent reality. And so that's why I always love when people say this is a fact. Well, most of the time no it's not. There's very little that is a fact in our day-to-day lives that we can one hundred percent indisputably say this is a fact or that's a fact. For example, the sky is blue. The sky is actually not blue. The sky is only blue because the light comes through our atmosphere and it filters out things in such a way that we see the sky as blue. But the sky in and of itself is not blue. There's a perfect example, okay? So all I'm saying is you got some of these things that went on hundreds or if not thousands of years ago. It is very difficult to sift out what were tall tales or what were based on fact or what were closer to fact versus what were just absolutely made up. Because the Romans were excellent at this. Someone dies. Something so so. Hannibal was the perfect example. Hannibal had his wars against Rome. He dies. They paint him as the ultimate villain and like the ultimate boogeyman that was going to destroy all of civilization. And of course, Hannibal was far from that. He was just the enemy to the Romans. So that revisionist history has been going on for thousands of years. Anyone who thinks that this is a current thing it's no it's not it's been going on for thousands of years so all i'm saying is someone like john d or any of these other people back i mean even as far as i'm concerned history stops at um, living memory and what i mean by that is anything before the people who have lived or that we've got actual records of that have lived anything before that is supposition because again it's just someone's account of what happened it doesn't mean it's reality okay it's just how someone saw it and oftentimes when you look at history and when when people point oh well this is what history says whose history again as uh i think i want to say it's churchill to paraphrase him you know he said that history is written by the victors which is true so for example i'm not saying they were great people but you know we've got the nazis and they had no redeeming qualities and everything about them was evil because we won World War II, uh, meaning the Allies. Now, if the Nazis won, a, would have won World War II, there would be a very different narrative out there right now. The same with the Cold War, the same with World War I, and on and on and on. So you have to take all of these things with a grain of salt is what I'm getting at. You can say this is probably fairly close to the truth, but facts and... No, it's not facts, okay? The only facts are in living memory that we can prove now anything before that are dates in a book or things that people have written in a book. And obviously that's always a rolling number. So like now, there's no one alive that remembers the American Civil War. There's no one alive, my understanding is, that fought in World War One. There may be people who remember it, but they weren't involved in it. Um, and it won't be too long and we'll be up to that with World War Two. So John D is a really interesting character. And I will definitely be doing at least one episode on him. I'd like to slate it into season four, but I don't want to promise you that we'll definitely do John D. But this article should definitely whet your appetites. And magic, British empires, colonialism, history, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is something I think that will interest a lot of you. So this is from Big Think. And it was written by Frank Jacobs. And again, just came out. Last week. Did dark magic conjure up the British Empire? Esoteric evidence points to a ritual performed by Queen Elizabeth's court magician, John Dee. An unremarkable stone circle in Mudchute Park is said to have a wild and dark history. Legend has it that this is where John Dee used magic to conjure up the British Empire. As incredible as that sounds, local geography provides some circumstantial evidence. The British Empire was not founded. It was conjured up by John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's court magician. There are two versions to the tale. Either Dee summoned a demon, or he sacrificed Christopher Marlowe, the famous playwright, in a blood ritual. Again, blood ritual, Aleister Crowley, starting to see the connections. Obviously, the tale is apocryphal. There is no evidence except the very circumstantial. If the Marlowe version is is to be believed, The dark magic ritual must have been performed at the end of May 1593. That is when official history says the playwright met a violent end in a tavern brawl in Deptford, just south of the Thames in the east of London. That gives us a date. And we also have a place. Stubborn rumor has it that the conjuring was done on the Isle of Dogs, just north of the Thames in the east of London. The exact spot is allegedly marked by a mysterious stone circle, tucked away near an elder grove in the northwest corner of Mudshute Park. Man, I'll tell you, I mean, England is just dripping in history, folks. I mean, there would be very, very few things in America that you could trace back to 1593, and, I mean, that's, like, fairly recent in London in comparison, you know? I visited the spot years ago, but going by recent pictures, the location is an un- as is as unremarkable now as it was then. Sorry. There is neither a signpost pointing to the circle nor any explanation of why it is there. It's just there. Only when you start researching some of the more esoteric aspects of local geography and folklore do the pieces fall into place. Literally, the stone circle sits on a line that connects a great number of locations with specific significance. According to some, that makes it the omphalos, a Greek for for navel of the British Empire, and that ley line. The term for a straight line between prominent landmarks infused with an energy of some sort intersects rather curiously with another one, which links two to major buildings by Sir Christopher Wren. So you've heard me talk a bit about ley lines. I think I definitely talked about it during the uh, Maurice Moss case, and it is a favorite of people involved in things like megalithic sites, Stonehenge, etc., It's basically that the world has this energy grid and on those ley lines is where you can tap into that energy. Does this all add up to proof of John Dee's ritual? It is a pertinent question, but it gets in the way of a more interesting one. Is this a good story? For local writer Stephen Sala, the answer to the latter is a definitive yes. Intrigued by the uh, umphalus rumor, Sala managed to fit together a whole bunch of puzzle pieces, that neatly sidestepped the first question by using his findings as the basis for a work of fiction. In 2019, he published, with Tony Lee and Marilla Malova, Dark Lines of London, a comic book that turns the omphalus mystery into a time-traveling adventure story that scans like an action-packed Hollywood blockbuster. Sala is indeed reworking his story for the screen. The following is an interview that I conducted with Sala. It has been lightly edited for clarity, style, and grammar. Stephen, I found out about the omphalos via a ublique reference in, I think, 40 and times. Aha, Charles Fort, 40 and times. How did you find it? About 10 years ago, I stumbled across a story about it on the front page of a local newspaper. I have not seen the article before. If anybody has, or sorry, article since. If anybody has, let me know. But my interest was piqued. Gradually, I found out more about John Dee, about the Omphallus, and about others interested in the same thing. John Dee is the key figure. What is his significance? John Dee was Queen Elizabeth's chief scientist and magician. There was not that much difference between the two roles at that time. He was the first to translate Euclid's works on geometry into English, but he also had an actual crystal ball. You can go. You can go see it at the British Museum. Because he stood on the border between science and magic, Dee was a peculiar and important figure. It was rumored that he had a hand in creating the sudden violent storm that wrecked the Spanish Armada. Shakespeare, a contemporary, supposedly modeled Prospero from The Tempest on John Dee. Around Dee's time, there was a secret society called the School of Night, which meant to discuss science. Known members included Sir Walter Raleigh, Francis Bacon, and Christopher Marlowe. Dee's name is not mentioned but I would be very surprised if he was not a member. That society plays a crucial role in our book. Both in the story and in real life, Dee was an advocate for Britain's expansion into the New World. He said it was the Queen's birthright. He also was the first to coin the term British Empire. Perhaps he took it upon himself to create the physical conditions for the creation of that empire, establishing the the Omphallus as its magical center. And as your research shows, the Omphallus is not an isolated point. There is no official explanation as to who built the circle or why. What is clear, though, is that it is on a ley line that connects a number of significant sites in East London, from Queen Mary's College at Mile End in the north to All Saints Church at Blackheath in the south. And if you extend it thousands of miles further north, it passes through the area, now in Canada, where the British were looking for the Northwest Passage. At that time, finding that fabled waterway to Asia was more important to them than actual colonization. So, I'm sorry, I haven't been doing the best at saying the questions and then their answers, so so this is the question here. What are those sites, and how are they significant? And here's his answer. To the north, the line passes through St. Anne's Limehouse, one of six churches designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor, and in fact right through a mysterious pyramid standing just outside the church building. Its purpose is unknown. It is not a tomb, and it has the wisdom of Solomon carved into it, Heard me talking about uh, the wisdom of Solomon and Solomon's seal during the uh, Boleskine House episode, folks. So, yep, tied in again. To the south, the line passes exactly between both wings of the old Royal Naval College, right on the south bank of the river in in Greenwich. It is on the spot where once stood Placentia Palace, the birthplace of Elizabeth I. A bit further south, it passes through the Queen's house. The line crosses the prime meridian right next to Greenwich uh, Greenwich Observatory where the meridian was established. It touches the statue of General Wolfe who defeated the French at Quebec and won Canada for the British. Also quite remarkable, there are two working nuclear reactors on this line a few miles apart, one either side of the Omphallus. One for research at Queen Mary's College which was moved to Stratford in the 1980s, until it had to move from there as well to make way for the Olympic Park for the 2012 Games. The other one was at the old Royal Naval College for training nuclear submarine crews. That one was decommissioned in the mid-1990s. The locals never even knew there was a nuclear reactor beneath their feet. Ironically, that was about the time the local left-wing council had declared uh, Greenwich a a nuclear-free zone. So here's the question. But how does all of this tie into John Dee? and here's his answer the title of d's key work monas hieroglyphica is also the name of a symbol he devised that symbol can be seen along the ley line also key to d's thinking is the versica Pisis, a symbol from euclidean mathematics not unlike the early christian ichthys sign that stands for both fish and woman yeah i was going to say pi- pis piscis is uh fish in latin i think i know uh, pesca in uh, italian is fish and uh, or Pesco and uh, Italian and Spanish, so I I knew that had something to do with fish. Now, exactly in the circle formed by the monas uh, hieroglyphica stands a statue of a woman holding a fish. That's interesting. The woman looks straight down the ley line. The fish is looking due south, right at another Hawkmoor church across the river, Saint uh, Al- Alfigis in Greenwich. The terrain uh, okay, question. The terrain at Mud Chute Park is much higher than it was in Dee's time, so the Omphalus is much more recent than Dee's time. Answer. Back then, that part of the Isle of Dogs was swampland, an excellent place to do magic. As the park's name suggests, the land here was leveled up with mud dug up a bit further north to create London's docklands, so the stone circle is actually several meters above the location where Dee supposedly performed his magical ritual. Um... Question. That, which must mean that? Answer. Some people remembered what had happened here and cared enough about it to commemorate the spot. Perhaps the secret society that created the Omphallus is still around to guard it. In fact, as you follow the ley line from the Omphallus south to the river, you notice that almost the entire stretch is undeveloped. Parks, gardens, football pitches. Question. Did you find any other evidence on the ley line that would indicate recent updates to the line? Answer. Docklands has been completely transformed into a financial district. The biggest building is topped by a pyramid. The southwest corner of that pyramid touches the ley line. The name of that building? Perhaps a coincidence, but it is One Canada Square. Could this be an indication that the actual British Empire has by now been replaced by a financial one? And on a somewhat smaller scale, near Island Gardens, just before the line reaches the Thames, a road was marked by two triangles, one on either side exactly where the line crossed they have only recently been removed question what is the significance of the second line coming in from the west answer sir christopher wren fits the profile of someone who may also have been involved in a secret society like the school of night that is why i drew a line between his two most important buildings saint paul's cathedral and the monument a memorial for the great fire of 1666 a dome and a pillar representing the female and the male principle, as you also find in other world cities like rome or washington dc which has the capitol building and washington monument well if you continue that line further east it intersects with the omphalus line exactly at the statue of the woman and the fish question you have unearthed the network of remarkable connections but what do they mean answer for the uninitiated like us it's hard to know and purposely so Not coincidentally, the very last line of the Monus Hieroglyphica reads, Here the vulgar eye will see nothing but obscurity and will despair considerably. Question. Will we ever find out? Answer. After we published Dark Lines of London in 2019, a public information sign was put up on Blackheath Common near All Saints Church. By the way, a late 19th century map clearly indicates the church has 666 seats. A curious number for a Christian congregation, to say the least, uh, especially built uh, back then. The text acknowledges that the church is built on a grand axis. To my knowledge, that is the first public acknowledgement of the ley line. I like to think that maybe someone is responding to the publication of our book. So yeah, folks, interesting little article there. And yeah, something else um john d is a fascinating fellow as i say and these kinds of things where you've got actual history tied in with um suppositions and uh theories and yeah it's always fascinating uh but as the old saying also goes oftentimes truth is stranger than fiction so we'll see in future if we find out more about that i'm sure i'll find some stuff that i dig up when we get to that john d episode and chris thanks so much for suggesting that i hope you really do enjoy that article. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep our eyes out for more John D stuff in the future. Well, folks, uh, thank you for listening in. I hope that you've really enjoyed this. I mean, it's basically a full length episode. Um, thanks for listening to my rant earlier. Take care and we'll see what next week brings, but I'll have something for you next week. Take care. Love y'all. Stay safe, my friends.